Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. I'm really excited to bring you this special episode of the 40 Minute Mentor with one of the most well-known figures in fintech, the awesome David M. Breer, CEO of 11FS. 11FS are made up of some of the greatest minds in fintech who are working to build and launch next generation digital propositions for some of the biggest financial institutions in the world. In just four years, they've achieved some incredible results as a challenger consultancy, whilst also launching one of the top business podcasts in the UK. Their strapline alone, digital banking is only 1% finished, gives you a flavour of their drive to challenge the status quo and disrupt the industry. As a fellow podcast host and also a passionate sports fan, David and I had lots to talk about. I've admired 11FS for a long time, so it was a real honor to sit down with David to find out more about his own career path and hear firsthand the incredible journey that 11FS has been on. Meeting him in person didn't disappoint, and in the episode we cover some really exciting topics, including how David's initial plans to become a pro basketball player were curtailed by injury, and how he ended up working in banking during the financial crisis. His incredible career with 11FS, and how they've carved their own path, creating a multifaceted business full of incredible talent and amazing clients, all without any external funding, and what company culture means to him, and how his love for sports has shaped the way 11FS have grown their own high-performing team. David is such a down-to-earth and refreshingly honest leader who is so easy to talk to. This episode's filled to the brim with great advice, particularly for those of you working in consulting or fintech. So whether you're a junior consultant looking to advance your career or a founder yourself, David goes into detail on the secrets that have helped him to succeed and the lessons he's learned along the way. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my episode with the brilliant David M. Breer. David, great to meet you. Thank you very much for being our 40-minute mentor today. And thank you for having us at your awesome offices. I thought we could kick off, as we always like to, with a 30-second review of your CV, if that's all right. Sure. Man, in 30 seconds. (laughs) It's a tough question. I know. (laughs) Tough one to start. Ex-banker, ex-insurance person, ex-management consultant, ex-agency guy, decided that actually the industry wasn't probably moving in the way that I felt like it could and should do. So tried to do something different with the company that I'm at now. Amazing. And I'm a big fan of the work you're doing at 11FS, so really keen to get into that. But wanted to start at the beginning almost. I know that you had a dream of becoming a professional basketball player and sadly a sort of injury put a roadblock in the way of that. Giving up a lifelong dream is a, is a big thing. How did you get back on your feet and kind of go again from a career perspective? Quickly okay. uh, is, the, is the, <laughs> best, uh, the best answer to that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I played like 11 different county sports, so various different things, pretty much everything other than football, weirdly. Oh, really? Like, uh, I like football now. Now, but just wasn't into it as a kid at all. What was the most niche sport? 
playing badminton, playing ping pong, uh, like all those types of things. Like there's a bunch of them that just blur in my mind now, the <laughs> rules of them. But I think what kind of comes down to it, I was just insanely competitive. Yeah. Unfortunately, as you say, um, three pins in my left knee and all the ligaments in my left knee done after putting the ball in the basket one time and twisting wrong. I basically had to go, well, what do I do at that point? Thankfully, you know, my dad didn't let me kind of uh, rest on my laurels too quickly. It was like, here's a stack of papers. Have a look at what you think the industry that will be broken in 10 years time when you come out of, uh, of university to, to really sort of make this something that will still be a problem when you come out. I looked at a few different industries. It looked like technology was going to be a thing. There was this thing called the internet. Um, uh, yeah, yes. And uh, the other two was oil and gas, which my dad was in, and banking. So being greedy, I kind of went for banking and technology and kind of went down the business and technology route. So okay. it was pretty intense. You know, yeah. I did first year and second year of A-levels in the same year to kind of catch up with everybody else because I didn't really want to get left behind. So doing maths and business and everything kind of in that side of things, maths, business and computing A-levels in one year was okay. interesting because the year two stuff that I should have had a good grounding for in year one was was challenge. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I went through it did really well Amazing. did an undergrad in computing realized that actually my sporting background was actually like kind of screwing with my head if I'm honest with you because I was naturally really good at sports but I wasn't really needing to apply as in I wasn't really needing to try because I was just naturally good at it and it was only at the point where I kind of came out of my undergrad with a 2-1 in computing where I realized that about 20,000 other people had exactly the same qualification exactly the same potential and as somebody who really sort of prides themselves on being different suddenly I realized I was like everybody else so that kind of like kicked me back quite a bit if I'm honest with you Um, and really like the switch that just went up from my head was while I might not be the smartest guy on the planet then I will work harder than anybody else kind of around me and that's just what I've done ever since. I'm intrigued about the initial group. Given what you do now at 11FS, going into finance at that time of, of the world, probably fairly turbulent. How did you find that experience, you know, as a, as a graduate, a fresh graduate? Yeah, I mean, I I, um, I went into insurance first. So insurance is a very, you know, a completely different kettle of fish than it is from a, a banking mm. perspective. But really, I mean, I got into banking in 2008, right? For anybody who sort of knows much about the crisis, that's just about when it kicked off. Yeah. So uh, a lot of my friends think I like kicked a plug or something and you know, <laughs> made the whole thing happen. But yeah, you know, genuinely sort of going into that industry at that period was there was lots of change, but actually fundamentally with lots of change brings opportunity. You know, the rise of everything that was the internet, the rise of digital being a thing. When I joined Lloyd's Banking Group's digital team, it was 12 people. Uh, you know, the internet just wasn't the thing that was really driving the entirety of the organization. Now, Zach, who I used to work with at uh, Lloyd's, you know, he's got a team of 22,000 people. Wow. Um, so, you know, the world has changed so dramatically. And actually, I mean, a lot of success is just being in the right place at the right time and seeing the opportunity and taking it. Yeah. So for me, really, it's, you know, as much as I joined at the worst time, for me, it was the best time because yeah. if everything was going tremendously well in the industry, then... Where's the fun in that? Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm keen to come on to, to the amazing work you're doing at 11FS. But as you mentioned, that the industry's changed a huge amount since you started back then. And 11FS produced a fantastic documentary for anyone listening and watching called 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech. Mm. And you spoke to a number of people in that high profile industry figures about what's happened since the crisis. Can you share for anyone that hasn't seen that just some of the highlights from that? And I guess from your perspective, kind of what that has meant for fintech and how that has kind of come about? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, the crisis was obviously a terrible thing. There were a lot of people that lost a lot of their jobs. Yeah. I mean, I, when I joined Lloyd's in 2008, the share price tumbled and a lot of people lost a lot of money and security from a retirement perspective. So, you know, by no means is this going, everything was wonderful. Yeah. And like, you know, but actually like the, the positive nature that kind of came out of it was actually... You know, if we sort of fast forward to today, London is the capital of fintech globally. It is the capital of financial services globally as well. Currently, we'll see what happens with Brexit and all these things that are happening. But really, that only happened because of what happened in 2008 and 2010, particularly. And really, for us, we do a lot of work from a community perspective. But fintechs that are being built today... I honestly don't think realized the hard work, the effort that went in around, you know, 2008 to 2010 to really create the environment that we've got today. You know, there are major changes that happened in the regulatory framework. There are really bold decisions that happened in the government that was in power at, at the time. And all of these things have contributed to the world that we live in today, where financial services is in, is in a much more democratized state than it ever has been before. Yeah, I think it's, it's a great point. And 11FS is very much at the heart of, of this industry now. And you've gone on to win many awards, and we'll talk about uh, some of the successes shortly. But I want to come back to the beginning of that story. You and your co-founders all had very successful careers in, in different different areas. Can you tell us a bit about the genesis of 11FS? What kind of brought you all together and what were some of those initial challenges at the mm. early points of the business? Yeah, I mean, I, I come back to, I think, the the hardest thing, there's two, like two things that have been the most scary, the difficult things to do over the last three and a half years has been, I mean, the first one was like signing the first lease on any place ever. That was terrifying. Yeah. But the bigger one than that was actually getting the team together in the first place. You know, it's one thing to be in a situation where you believe something as an individual. But actually, I mean, Jason, you know, our deputy CEO now, co-founder of Monzo, co-founder of Starling. Simon was running R&D at uh, Barclays, you know, and, and Ross had a really, really good job running research at a company called Mapper. You know, to get these guys to believe what I believed and actually get them to leave really awesome jobs at really awesome companies to come and maybe make this thing a success that was a kind of a lot of responsibility and actually even for myself as well you know mm. to quit you know I had a good job at Gartner you know running their global digital banking practice got two kids uh, you know like it's kind of like being in a situation where you quit your job to like pursue your dream sounds like some sort of beginning of a horror story right <laughs> you know so but yeah getting that belief uh, in all of us in terms of both in what we thought the industry could be mm. but fundamentally what we believe our place in that can be as well. And really, what are the things that kind of unite us? It's less about what we do, it's more about the way that we do it. Mm. And that's why I think actually we've had so much more success than really I, I think anybody kind of expected us to. Not that we did, we definitely expect much more than mm. what we're doing now. But I think in terms of if you look at the sort of traditional players within the market, I think many people are very surprised that we've yeah. had the, the level of impact. But I mean, for us, very much like the industry, we're you know, only just getting going, really. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I commend you on on the bravery to go out and, and, and carve a different path. It feels almost like the Avengers assembling when you got all these uh, these great people together. I Did mean, you... that was literally the narrative that I used. <laughs> like, Simon will often tell that story, which is, I mean, my, my whole point on that was, I mean, Iron Man and, like, the Hulk get their own movie. Yeah. And we could all be independently successful doing interesting things, and that would be, like, fun. But when there's, like, a really big bad, like, everybody gets together. Yeah. And that's really 
why you know the Avengers it can be seen as very like childish and silly but I'm childish and silly so yeah, like it's no, fine, I like you know? it I like it um, but no it was a it was a good kind of metaphor and actually continually people are kind of bringing that back I think mm. Business Insider wrote a thing about it and it's it's just sort stuck. of stuck you yeah know? I'm, I'm certain I've heard it somewhere great well um, I, I know you've as a team you, you've done some amazing things it's hard to know what to call 11FS given all the different things you do and I know you're not the biggest fan of the word consultancy what is it that you dislike about that and how are you building a brand that is truly different to the other players out there and I say this from someone that has been a headhunter in the consulting space and fintech for 10 years I guess I've seen the big and the small and the, those that have succeeded and I, I love what you're doing so it'd be great to hear a bit about your perspective on that yeah I mean I think it comes down to like the fundamental of how you build out the company I mean generally I think humans are good people like mm. I, I don't think anybody sort of sets out to be a bad person but I think many of the incentives that are put around people within organizations kind of can turn good people bad so and actually you sort of see that across pretty much any industry if you look at anywhere where there's been a sort of a catastrophic kind of problem within an organization is because people weren't living the values or fundamentally the incentive was driving them down a place that was beneficial to them as an individual yeah. rather than to the company. So for us, it's it's about how we set out the business in the first place. You know, we, we sort of believe that consultancy for me is, is a bit of a dirty word because actually what it kind of implies is it's somebody there to, based on their business model, kind of land and expand. You know, I kind of often joke, it's like if everything is time and materials, like everything takes a lot of time and costs a lot of materials, right? So the incentives in the industry, I think, are are broken, really. And actually, if you look at, it's not just consultancies, but you've got management consultancy spending so much time on golf courses selling 10 million pound PowerPoint packs, or you've got gigantic technology players with business models that are pretty much like barbs on a fishing hook. You know, this is about getting somebody onto the, the platform and then 20 million, 30 million upgrade costs to kind of keep that thing going. Mm. You know, we sort of fundamentally feel that we're in a such a massive transition in the industry. You know, we talk about our purpose being really we're here to change the fabric of financial services. And actually, over the next 10 years, it kind of feels like all of that is massively up for grabs. Banks haven't got to digital yet. Mm. I think many think they have, and they've spent billions of pounds sort of in the pursuit of it. But we're living in this digitized world. And actually, what we're really trying to go about doing is we're merrily spoiling a bunch of other people's business models because fundamentally whether it's cloud services that should be passing on those savings or whether it's fundamentally digital being a small team sport meeting it's not about having 5,000 people it's about having the 15 who can really get that thing done you know fintech has shown that there is just a better way of doing this and all we're doing is applying startup mentalities and methodologies to really big organizational problems it's really refreshing and and i think because you've you've been there and done it and you have this kind of bold approach the challenge to stay I can totally see how that resonates with, with clients and you're clearly having lots of success with that new model. The strap line that, that I've read a lot around digital bank is only 1% finished uh, kind of plays into that, I think. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what you mean by that and, and your view on the, the UK fintech industry as a whole, what, what the opportunity could be for you guys? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we sort of, you know, I should say like we've done sort of lots of work kind of outside of banking. Like the whole this journey 1% finished was originally actually a Facebook uh, line okay. because actually what they really wanted to do as they grew bigger and bigger was protect the idea that anybody thought that they were done you know that the industry had peaked and you know social media was like a thing and they were like wildly successful but actually how did they create a culture internal to their organization that actually everybody was always you know in the pursuit of making things better okay. so for us I mean we, we sort of look at the 1% finished 
thing from a particularly from a digital banking perspective is just a kind of a bit of an indictment on where we are given the fact that everybody's spending multiple billions on digital transformation that actually all we've done is take paper and people out of a process really rather than embracing what digital can really do i mean if you look at any industry that has really been reborn because of what digital is whether you look at you know, really where we are now with Spotify, with digital music, or I mean, even sort of from a newspaper perspective, we're seeing massive fall away from the viewership for the BBC and the Telegraph to Twitter and YouTube and and various different places that people trust more. Mm. Uh, You know, the, the, the fundamental there is it's not just analog products distribute through uh, a digital channel, but it's a fundamental rethink on actually what those things are, more to create services than it is just products. Yeah. So for me, it's it's kind of, we're in this midst of a, of a real industry reset. And the banks get a lot of bad press and like, you know, a kicking every so often in the newspaper, one of them or another. But actually, like the whole ecosystem around banking is, is not being good for a really long period of time. And actually, whatever slice of it that we can help to really sort of shift that fabric of financial services, then we'll be able to kind of focus on. Mm-hmm. I, I should say as well, as I mean, we, we've been bootstrapped from the beginning. We've took no VC money. There's no sort of evil villain sitting with the, <laughs> the money in the background, which means we can make decisions really quickly. We can actually go into weird and wonderful areas of things that you know do a documentary yeah. why not right yeah it's um, so refreshing yeah. well it's good it means yeah. we're not inhibited by what somebody thinks we should do we've got a really really talented group of people who really can come up with weird and wacky ideas to move things forward or you know building out full product lines that we've never even thought about before and when you're so community focused in the way that we are we really sort of push whether it's documentaries or the podcasts or the content that we put out, whether you know written or whatever. For us, it's all about how can we create and add as much value to the community as we can. And I kind of say this a lot, but I'm in no way, shape, or form religious. But I really believe in karma. And in the more good you do, the more good happens. Therefore, the more we can kind of give up time or work with people who don't have the opportunities that we do, or even just allow them to hear conversations because actually it might be in inspirational or it might shape the way that they get into the industry or not. Anything we can do on that side of things, the, the better from my perspective. It's a great mantra. And I think, as you mentioned, the, the ecosystem does seem broken. And I think part of that is is the lack of trust in the big institutions. I guess, case in point, JBM, I, I won't name which bank, has been with the big bank since I started the business over seven years ago. And we had an absolute nightmare, got locked out of the bank for too long. Mm. And in the space of an afternoon, I'd set up a Starling and very quickly I transferred everything across. And it has been genuinely game-changing for me. I'm really interested in your thoughts. I know you've helped a number of incumbent banks with, with this sort of thing, trying to help them evolve, but how do you feel they can compete with this growing number of the Monsos, the Starlings, the Tides, etc.? I mean, it's really tough. I mean, any any industry goes through a, a bit of a cycle like this. You know, it's, I mean, Clayton Christensen laid it out really well on the, the, sole, well, the whole sort of innovators dilemma. And actually, that's playing out in financial services so significantly mm. right now. I mean, the banks have got all the customers, they've got more money than like anybody on the planet to invest in making this really sort of work. The inhibitor is actually predominantly cultural. You know, you have many organizations that have been set up in a certain way for a certain period of time with people in control who, A, uh, it's like Turkey's voting for Christmas, right? They're never going to give up control. They're never going to give up budget. And that's a difficult thing to kind of face into because if you do have the customers, you do have the investment, you should win, right? But being in that situation where you almost can't unlearn the way that it's been done 
to really figure out that you can approach these things in fundamentally different ways. I mean, I remember back in, in Lloyd's, you know, it was a it was a gigantic deal that we merged the business and the technology teams. Mm. But actually now, when you kind of look at how agile works, like yeah. multidisciplinary teams having, you know, developers in a different building or in a different country just doesn't make any sense if you really want to work in an agile method. So for me, I, I think it's like the big banks like any problem like the first stage of resolving it is like admitting that there is one right and for those organizations that are kind of doing that you find people change really quickly to start with i think fintech was a sort of bottom-up revolution there was you know kind of younger people in banks going hey there's like this cool thing that you know it seems to be sort of gaining steam here maybe we should be interested in it now actually the conversation we have uh, top down you know it's like ceo of bank knows they need to fundamentally challenge themselves you know somebody like alison rosa at natwest been at the bank for 25 years but so tuned into actually the changes that are happening kind of outside of her four walls so things like metal you know her whole stance on that was like if we don't challenge ourselves we're waiting for somebody else to do it to us so you know it isn't really about customer capability you know that's great it's good to kind of have a four minute account opening or whatever and supposed to i mean it took us 12 weeks to get our bank account when we started 11fs it was mad you know it's really about how can you fundamentally change the operation within an organization how can you establish a, a more of a challenger culture within a company and we found this i mean we've done work with standard charter over in hong kong and people like grab uh, who are essentially like the uber equivalent yes, out yeah. there in singapore and this is the thing that kind of it keeps coming back to you know i keep saying this but it's like it is not what you do it's the way that you do it the way to make it sustainable within any organization is like talent and culture everything else is simple get the right culture unlock it unleash talent within that culture and then figure out what it is that you actually want to do next couldn't agree more and it's a perfect segue to the next part of this conversation where I really wanted to talk about 11FS's culture sure. and, and talent in particular which is a subject close to my heart you've been growing very quick I think you're over 150 people now 180 uh, 180 yeah. wow amazing and that's in a relatively short amount of time and I know you and I was talking to Alicia earlier you pride yourselves on the culture that you've created how would you describe that 11FS culture to our listeners what are some of the steps that you've taken to, to build it mm. and sustain it yeah I mean I, I sort of summarise us as you know, on the macro, we are incredibly aggressive. Like we are aggressive because we are here to change the industry. Therefore, the macro view is how do we impact the fabric of financial services, right? On the micro level, we're the most human organization you've ever possibly come across because actually how we all work together, it kind of comes back to my sports you know, days really. And actually, if you kind of look at a lot of things that we're embedding into uh, 11FS's values that we stand for, both from a, the way in which we expect managers to manage or everybody to act on a, on a day-to-day basis, it's really just about laying out what the rule book is. And I think if you don't give people a guide of what good and what bad is, and actually giving them consistent understanding of actually where people sit within that, yeah. then actually, I mean, you can't be surprised if somebody doesn't do what you want them to do unless you tell them, right? Mm. The thing I, I will say about culture is, I mean, if you go and talk to a big organization about culture, they're talking about, should we give free lunches and, you know... Table tennis table here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and it it becomes it becomes a, a parody of what good culture actually is. Mm. Good culture is like good business because if you hire really, really exceptional, talented people but don't give them the framework to do the best job that they've ever done, then it's just bad business yeah. that, that way. You know, I like 
like in a, like if Real Madrid bought all the best players and then the training facilities were terrible, like it would just wouldn't make sense, would it? So for us, it's like I'm I want to build the company where you can do the best work you've ever done in your entire life. But I'm really clear with people like we're doing it because I want you to do the best job of you have ever done. But ultimately, we want the company to be really successful. So how can I make you successful and how can I make the company successful? Like these things are not mutually exclusive, right? Yeah, absolutely. Essentially, you, you made reference to sport there. And I know you've recently uh, announced your values and you often seem to make sporting references to, to describe your approach to business, which I love. I'm a huge sports fan mm. and I can totally see the important characteristics and traits you get in a sporting team translating to business. Business. How do you think that passion for sport has impacted your career? And and is that something that is sort of uh, across 11FS is, is is received well and something that people buy into? Yeah, I mean, the, the sport, the port, uh, you know, use, using that as, a, as, a, as an analogy, it's just a, a framing reference because actually people can relate to it. Yeah. I mean, even if you dislike sports, you kind of get how sports work, yeah. right? So for me, it's it's less about, you know, wanting like a, a, a locker room culture, you know, which has such negative kind of connotations yeah. to it. More it's about really, I think great sports teams, everybody within it knows their role. Everybody has a responsibility to everybody else on that team. Yeah. And actually, if the team works collectively together and the management manage the, you know, the team effectively, then you can achieve things that are beyond the abilities of individuals on their own. And that's really what we kind of set out to do. I would say I am I'm probably the most competitive human I've ever come across. And I got that's, that sense we were talking earlier about Peloton and <laughs> Yeah. And it's and I know it in myself and it's really especially like being a dad, like having two kids now and stuff, it's like trying not to instill that too much in them. But knowing that, I mean, the, the person that I'm most competitive with is me. Yeah. And that's the thing that scares me sometimes, which is why Peloton is going to ruin my life. Because I know it's there and I know how competitive I am with myself. So I know that actually I will continue to push myself. Yeah. It kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier on. is like, actually, when I know that the only person that I really care about, caring about how well I'm doing is me. And actually, I know that I'm going to work harder than anybody else in anything that I ever do. It's actually quite a scary thing to face into something that is both really addictive and really good for me and really competitive. Yeah, so. definitely. <laughs> well, I'm excited. That hopefully, next time we meet, you you won't have fallen over too many times it? Oh, well. by pushing yourself, but up that leaderboard at Peloton. Now, I think it's it's really interesting and very inspiring, and I can totally see why you've been able to attract the 18 sort of talent that you have because we know for a fact every single person we talk to wants to work for a mission-driven dynamic business with a great culture mm. and I know you guys have definitely got that it's been a relatively short amount of time but you've gone from coffee shop to this fantastic office over 180 employees how have you gone about actually growing the business and, and finding the best people uh, I'd mm. love to get your take on that yeah I mean the growing the business one is, is interesting because we've, we've sort of almost grown out of a process about three days after we put it in every time we do it just because to go from you know five people to then you know 15 I mean, I mean Zoe talk about this a lot where it's like actually like our Friday team meeting has gone through so many different incarnations of it because actually what you can do when you're 10 people or what you can do when you're 50 people is completely different and when you get to 100 people things break in a really interesting way and then when you get to 150 people like you know we used to have a, um, a Friday meeting where everybody talked you know everybody talked in the company what was your highlight what was your low light who do you give a shout out to this week and it was great because there were people who everybody 
everybody would get to hear what everybody was doing at like 100 and, you know, 180 people. That just wouldn't be practical yeah. to do. But we've talked to some really smart people. You know, we've got friends who work at places like Google and Apple and whatnot. And, I mean, Google, at the company size that they are now, still do a weekly stand-up. You know, like it's not for everybody. You know, 100,000 people don't stand up at the same time. <laughs> but they do that as a town hall to disseminate interesting pieces of information and make sure everybody is connected. So I think, again, it you don't create a great culture by like doing it by accident. You have to be very, very, to your point around being purpose-driven, you have to be incredibly purpose-driven in terms of that being a key focus. I'd say, you know, 30, 40% of my time is spent making sure that we really think about that and actually make sure we're reinforcing it and acting on it. Yeah. There's a lot of talk of like company values and various different things that you see people put out. I mean, Enron is always like such a great example. I think theirs was like honesty and integrity and <laughs> I don't know, something else that they didn't do. And then, you know, we obviously sort of know what happened type thing. So, you know, values and culture and all these things can very quickly become sort of like bullshit posters on a wall unless you kind of deal with it properly and live with live them every day yeah yeah totally totally um but it's i think on that though it's it's even down to i mean things like performance management like most organizations don't face into i mean in a sport nobody waits till the end of the season to tell somebody that they're not doing a good job of putting the ball in the back of the net right so why not do in play feedback much more directly you know if you if you create a culture that has everybody presumes positive intent and actually you do in play feedback to go hey i didn't really understand that or hey i thought that was a bit harsh or hey you did a really good job or you know your team are killing it on this thing like that in play capability means that actually the organization is constantly evolving and constantly moving i mean we're doing performance feedback for everybody we're you know moving to a monthly cycle on that rather than an annual cycle on it because you know when do you want to change you don't want to change at the end of the year you want to change when you can do something about it again it makes sense from an individual perspective but from a business's perspective like you want people to continually be evolving continually be getting better at what they do and i think it it flips the responsibility you know it should from in my mind it's like a manager is not there to contain people within their team their single purpose is to make the people in their team do a better job and actually that's about creating the environment it's about giving the right support giving the right vision of what that is that they need to be achieving but that's their job you know like managers are there to make the team better yeah absolutely no i think it's, it's fascinating insight and um it's amazing given the sorts of clients the scale-up clients that we work with how many get this wrong and a lot comes down to i think communication and openness and transparency and i know that's something that you guys have done particularly well for anyone that's listening to this maybe a business owner that's, that's looking at scaling the business are there any particular lessons that you've learned challenges you've overcome perhaps things that you've got wrong in growing the business nothing is ever done like don't think you've completed or finished or you know achieved anything because it it never is you know like building a business is it's like a computer game like every success you have just unlocks like the next level of bad guys that you kind of go to so definitely kind of don't believe the hype of yeah. yourself is like a big thing i think the other one as well is like when people say hire smarter people around you than you like a lot of people say that and a lot of people are like being really humble about it but genuinely hire smarter people than you. Like it's literally from the founding team up, 
all I've tried to do is bring more people around me with a greater skill set of the thing that I'm trying to do. And I will still go and do a thing and try and you know figure out if this is a thing that we as a company should go and do more of. But then you bring in people that are way better than you, whether it's like, I mean, for our podcast, like I did the editing to start with until Jason told me I was terrible at doing it. And then Jason started doing it. <laughs> There's and that then, feedback culture. Yeah. yeah. And then we realized Jason was bad at it. And then we brought in Michael, who's brilliant. So it's, it's kind of one of those things. It's, it's like lead by example is probably a good thing. Yeah but realize where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. And where your weaknesses are is bringing better people than you. Awesome advice. We're getting towards the end of the conversation, uh, but I just wanted to touch on on podcasting because it's something that you guys do fantastically well. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't inspired to set up our own podcast off the back of being a a listener to FinTech Insider. So thank you for that. I think it's a wonderful content tool and a great way to get across to to an audience just mission and and, and I guess what you're up to. Can you just give our our listeners a bit of an insight into how that's benefited the business? I know you you not only have one, you have three, but how that's increased awareness for your brand and just the benefits to anyone listening that may be thinking about doing one. Sure. I mean, we we started the podcast because really it was a, I mean, it was a necessity. If I'm honest with you, like you're a, you're a five person organization and you want to compete with the Accenture and McKinsey. Like, are you crazy? Like, <laughs> so how can you do that? Well, I mean, if you're setting your organization up to be like truly authentic in terms of what you want to do, you need people to hear that, not just read it. I think people will kind of get a sense for something by reading a blog post. But if they see you in a video or you, they hear the, the the passion that you're actually trying to instill into something, I think they'll really get a different vibe to it. I mean, a lot of startups talk about do things that don't scale. I say like do things that scale, like and podcasting scales in like a major way because yeah. actually for an organization who you could go and sit and talk to 100 people and never find anything interesting to, to kind of keep us occupied. But actually, if you can put out a podcast that can go out in you know 180 plus countries a week and touch people who wouldn't get to listen to those types of conversations before. I mean, the reason we started in the first place, we were in a bar in Bank with Solaris Bank. Bank the tube station with Solaris Bank at the bank. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> just clearing that up. And actually, we were just like, people should hear this stuff. You know, it's like really insightful. I mean, like you do. You're like you're in a bar. You're like, we're hilarious. Yeah. People should hear this stuff. <laughs> um, but again, it kind of comes back to that. How can you create value for a community? How can you allow, you know, people in far-flung countries to kind of listen to really what's happening in, in the epicenter for fintech? And that's been really all we've sort of tried to do. We don't really talk too much about what we do on it, which if I'm honest with you, as a company, we focus more on brand and what we believe than Mm -hmm. the specifics of what we do as a product, if that makes sense. Because actually, it's like, if people really align with you on what you believe, then actually, there's a different type of relationship. So it's been hugely beneficial to us. You know, we know, I mean, we get DMs on Twitter or WhatsApp messages from CEOs or banks who listen to it who are like, hey, I think you should have covered this in this way. Or, (laughs) uh, you know, can we come on and, you know, talk about this or whatever. And that's really interesting. But equally, it's a bit weird because me and Jason kind of went to a boardroom in Hong Kong and really, really lovely lady. And, you know, we kind of start on a thing and she's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard all this stuff like where I listen to the podcast. And I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> we need new stories. Yeah. Like we, uh, so it, there is a, there is an interesting sort of pressure where you're like, well, 
we, you know, You're you don't want to just, out there, aren't you? well, yeah, well, you don't want to turn into like that old band who just does their greatest hits, right? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so I mean, it puts pressure on us to constantly be evolving and constantly be doing things. But genuinely, I think over the last three and a half years, like doing FinTech Inside is one of my highlights because I get to like hang out with like some friends and drink and talk to like really smart people in the industry. And like, that's my job. Like if going back to like school and like taking this full circle, but I mean, if I was like back in education and my career advisor would have told me that then i wouldn't have believed it yeah. so um it's pretty cool no well well thanks thanks for the inspiration because i found exactly the same i feel it's a real privilege to be able to talk to people like yourself and i've seen i mean for jbm it's just been it's been a brilliant one learning exercise mm. i was I certainly no expert yet there's a long way to go but i really enjoyed the process mm. but also it's 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 opened up many doors and i can certainly see how you guys have done that fantastically well we are towards the end here, David. Last couple of questions. It would be ridiculous if I didn't ask you about mentorship, given the name of this podcast. It's something that's really important to me. So I was wondering if you had any mentors, or what mentorship means for you and, and the effect it's had on your career. I mean, bizarrely, our chairman now, so Sean Meadows. So when I was back at Aviva, I was roughly 3,000 levels below him. <laughs> and I mean, I met him a couple of times while I was actually at Aviva. And he just struck me as such a great senior human, but just such a lovely human as well. I mean, he has such a great balance between those things. And I found that really sort of inspirational. I've kept in touch with him since being at Aviva and managed to get him to be our chairman at 11 as well. So yeah, people like that. Another one is, I mean, both of our non-executive directors at 11FS. One of them is Chris Skinner, who's written just everything about the industry forever. The other one, Lisa Gansky, who she's famed as basically being like these female Steve Wozniak in Silicon Valley. So she's just, she was actually the lady who created the digital processor, digital photography processor for Kodak. Oh, wow. uh, so I had the, you know, multi-billion pound deal to kind of do these things and tell some amazing stories. Awesome. So there's a lot of people who, A, will keep us all really, really humble because they've done way more stuff than we will ever do. But equally, they're just inspirational in terms of the impact that they've had. Yeah. So um, And there's a really nice spread. And I think that's particularly important when you have mentorship, isn't it, from different perspectives and different types totally. of people. I think the, the only other person I I'd say is like my mom. Like yeah. generally, I think like work ethic always kind of comes from home, and you know, I think from the minute that switch kind of went off in my head to work harder than anybody else around me, that and the value of money. I think yeah. it's like um, these are the things that are probably best learned early and at home. So yeah, I mean, most of this is uh, is down to. Her. I'm sure that'll resonate with a lot of people. And what does the next twelve months look like? I think the speed at which you guys are growing and the things you're achieving is probably quite scary to think where you could be in twelve months' time. But what does the, from a personal perspective and a professional one? What does 2020 look like? 2020 is pretty hectic. It started very, very strong. We're going to double and double. So it's like double on team, double on revenue. And there is some really interesting things. If you kind of look, stand back from 11FS, it's it's actually four or five companies mm. together in a group, meaning the revenue models all support each other really effectively. But the investment that we're making in some big products, particularly on 11FS Foundry, yep. which is a core banking system, full stack architecture, you don't build that in weeks. It no. takes a year. Yep. So for us, the partnership that we We've got in place with DMB, who's the biggest bank in Norway. That really comes online sort of middle of this year. So I see a really sort of exponential growth for that business area. But equally, like the services business is going amazingly well. You know, we've just opened up an office over in New York. There's many other geographies that I'm really interested in sort of getting into. We're kind of in this interesting, I'm describing it internally, any kind of change adoption curve starts quite slowly. And actually, there's lots of good news stories 
and then it becomes relentless. Yeah. And actually, we're just on that cusp now of going from those really, really early adopters to a much bigger slice of that market share. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of look at what we've done as a company, you know, working in uh, Africa and you know Thailand and Hong Kong and the US and UK and South America and all over the place, it's really been the three or four percent of like those really, really early adopters. What we've seen, you know, definitely if Q1's anything to go on for this year so far, is the market is changing so dramatically. So you'll start to see, rather than us sort of taking our foot off the pedal, the gas is very much kind of going down for really sort of doing more and being in more places. So um, watch this space for some pretty interesting announcements to come into. Awesome. I look forward to hearing about them. And from a personal perspective, I know Peloton, now that your new bike has arrived, that's probably one. But what, what are you looking to achieve personally? Yeah, I mean, I, I talked about this in a few times before but it's like I mean first few years of a company your priorities are wrong but they're right if that makes sense I mean I, I very much prioritize the business over everything else really like my health and you know family life at because you kind of you're in a situation where you sort of have to three and a half years into the organization where we're at the sustainability the awesome team that I've kind of got around us actually it kind of means I can take a little bit more stock and prioritize a little bit better so sustainability across everything in terms of what we're doing and just being in a situation where actually I you know health is wealth and all that so you know taking care of myself a little bit better is probably a good thing to do great stuff thank you David it's been such a pleasure meeting you I, I've got one final question for you and that's for any listeners that might be hearing you speak, being inspired by your story and thinking about maybe making a career move, what final one piece of career advice would you give them? I mean, I've always lived by you add something to your CV every three months or else you move. Because I always kind of say, I think your your job is your employer's, but your career is yours. And I think the minute that you really take responsibility for your career, rather than waiting for people to kind of give you opportunity or to like pick you out of the crowd to kind of promote you into a thing, is every three months you put a bullet on your CV, else you move jobs. I think that's an awesome place to end this. Thank you very much, David. It's been a real pleasure meeting you. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.